Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. There are, there are a lot of things that we're going to be reading today that will sound very familiar to you because Paul has used the point that he's going to make already once before. Uh, to close his argument on Christian liberty and freedom. You see, chapter 8, Paul addressed Christian liberty pertaining to the things that are not sinful. They're not explicitly written in Scripture to be sinful, yet will become sinful the moment you cause a Christian brother or sister to stumble. In fact, you could say that Christian liberty is the overall central theme of chapter 8, 9, and 10 in 1 Corinthians. And and the way that Paul lays out his points follows a pattern. It's something like this. Yes, you have liberty to do X, but Y is how I do it. So yes, you have freedom in Christ, but let me tell you what it looks like to be a slave to Christ. And this is the structure that he uses for many of his arguments in his other epistles as well. And every point that Paul makes follows this pattern. And it's, it's uh, not only here in 1 Corinthians, but in all of his other writings as well. And it's a powerful statement to those puffed up Christians who feel so wise and liberated in their knowledge um, when Paul states, yes, you have freedom, but I... I am a slave to Christ. And Paul continues this same pattern here in our text today that we'll see. So if you would stand with me um, for the reading of God's Word, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the market, in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without question, asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this, meat, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the, one, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered consider, concerning that which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, give no offense to either Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. And then verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you be with us this morning. Give us ears to hear your word as you meant for it to be, not my opinion, but your will, Father. We ask that you, uh, that, that you be with us this morning and, and Um, and speak your word as clearly as you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You may be seated. Now, obviously, the majority of this text is about eating meat sacrificed to idols, whether you're alone or you're in an unbeliever's home. But Paul already covered this back in chapter 8, right? So why is he bringing it up again? He does go into a little bit more detail here on the topic, but why didn't the Holy Spirit inspire him to put these details back in chapter 8 rather than spacing them out over multiple chapters the way he did? Now, as Pastor Mike mentioned last week, we know that God's Word is inspired by God Himself. Yes, it was physically written by men, but every jot and tittle was exactly how the Lord willed it to be in the original language. God's Word is infallible, meaning it, can, it contains the truth and nothing but the truth, the very truth that the Lord has willed for us to know. God's Word is inerrant, meaning it does not contain one single infinitesimal speck of error because it is exactly how the Lord willed it to be written. And God's Word is sufficient, meaning it contains all that we need to know in order to understand and believe that the Lord, everything that the Lord desires for us to know and understand and believe. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 states, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And we know that you've heard this before. We, we beat this horse a lot, but it's worth hearing again and again and again. This book exists so that we may know. It doesn't exist so that we may toil with it and question it, whether it being truth or not, or, or so that we can debate it, whether it's true or not, so that we may know. Because everything else is a lie. It's a temporary fulfillment that this world offers to draw your attention, your attention off of Christ and onto something else that will burn away. There's only one truth that exists. Rest in that truth, in Him and His truth alone. Quit toiling with it in your heart and find true peace in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we know that Scripture is inerrant and infallible. Then we also must know that the purpose for Paul revisiting the meat sacrifice to idols issue, that's not an error, that's not an accident. Paul didn't just forget these details earlier and then decide to put them in now. This is exactly where the Lord wanted it to be in this scripture. It doesn't matter who you are. Sorry, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about timeless truth. And that's what is hidden within Scripture that it's our job to find. And it doesn't matter, this timeless truth, it doesn't matter who you are or what country you're in. Uh, it doesn't matter what language you speak or, or even what century you're in. That timeless truth that is found in, God, in God's Word lasts forever. It knows no boundaries or borders or timelines. 
It's the universal truth for every man who has ever existed and ever will exist, whether you believe it or not. And Pastor Mike gave us an, a perfect example last week of timeless truth. None of us have idols of gold or silver or bronze in our home today, yet the truth still remains that if you do not flee from idolatry, you are drinking the cup of demons. Whether the idol is made of metal or money or success or even worthless possessions, it is still a cup, the cup of demons. And that truth remains 2,000 years later and will remain another 2,000 years from now if Christ hasn't returned. It's that simple. Now, I could, I could easily, this sermon could easily be a part two from my sermon in chapter 8 and just as easily be a part two from chapter 9 as well as a part two of, of Pastor Mike's sermon last week. And this is precisely why Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, places it right here in the text, not back in chapter 8. Because the universal truth of this pericope would guide the Corinthians, as well as us, modern-day Christians today, in understanding our limits of Christian liberties and freedoms, the liberties that we have in Christ. Now, a, a preacher's job is to proclaim the Word of God to the people of God in a way that challenges the individual and reveals the urgency of obedience to God's will as His bride. We don't want to be lukewarm Christians, only to be spewed out of His mouth. And if I have not convinced you of that by the end of this sermon, then I will have failed. And just as Pastor Mike stated last week, you must walk away from this sermon, as with every sermon, asking yourself, does my life reflect the instructions I just received? Because that instruction is not my opinion and it's not Pastor Mike's opinion. It's the written word of God, and you either receive it or you reject it. And we must be like the noble Bereans who tested everything, even the word that, pre that Paul preached to them. They tested to be sure that what he was saying was scripturally accurate. And Paul applauded their efforts. He didn't get his feelings hurt and leave the church. In fact, he used their example to teach other Christians how to discern truth from false doctrine. That's something that you'll hear often. Be like the noble Bereans. Can you say that about your own life? And that is the challenge that I extend to you today, as well as myself, as I stand up here in front of you. If you are challenged by God's word, would you examine yourself in that area? Would you grow and be sanctified? Or would you be offended at the person who preached it? I pray it would be the former of the two. Now let's walk through these verses and get a little deeper into the text, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, we've, this is not the first time we've heard this. Back in chapter 6, 
um, Paul states the same thing. So it's kind of curious that he uses the same terminology in both places. Let's turn there now, chapter 6, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are lawful for me, but I, or all things are, are lawful for me, but not all, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, it's argued that this statement is actually some sort of mantra or motto used in, in Corinth. In fact, some translations in your Bible may have that phrase in quotation marks, or uh, before it, it may say, you say, and then quotation marks, all things are lawful for me. There's, there's no quotation marks in the original text, though, and you say isn't there either, so we can really only uh, speculate where that comes from. But it is significant that he uses it four times in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Either way, the statement does ring true aside from sin. It could have very well been that Paul used that phrase whenever he was in Corinth, and then they got some some more liberal Corinthians who, all things are lawful, all things are lawful, I can do all things because all things are lawful. And now he's putting it back in the proper context If it's not categorized as sin in Scripture, then those things are lawful. We do have freedom to discern if it's something we should participate in or not. However, like I said, they may have taken a more liberal approach to God's grace in stating that they have freedom even to sin because of the grace that comes from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in which Paul clearly stated, has stated multiple times, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be, which is translated, it should never, ever be done. So there's no wavering with sin. We are clearly under grace and no longer under the law, but that is no means, by no means a license to continue in sin. Which is what leads us to believe that this, this was a motto that Paul was using to prove his point and had been hijacked by the more liberal Christians in Corinth. But let's read on in there in chapter 6 and see how this phrase was used then in chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that... The one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have 
from God and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, in the passages that Pastor Mike covered last week, we heard, flee from idolatry. And, and then we see the same exact language used again here, flee from adultery, right after he used that, that language, all things are lawful for me. It really just ties it back from chapter 6 to chapter 10. So Paul's point is that we are joined or made one with Christ. Therefore, Paul is not talking about sin being lawful. In fact, just before this, Paul had just gone through a very exhaustive list of sins, which some of them, uh, some of the Corinthians, were guilty of themselves once. Yet it should be no surprise to you that today, liberal or progressive Christians are still hijacking this phrase to justify their own sinful lifestyle and desires. Here was Paul's point all along. Anything we do, whether in freedom or in sin, we join Christ to. If, it, if His Spirit is truly in us. To sin against your own body is to sin directly against Jesus Christ Himself. So really this sermon could be a part two of the sermon preached back on chapter 6 as well. Not because of manipulating Scripture, but because the timeless truth of God's Word is universal. It's consistent. Now let's get back to chapter 10. Start back at verse 23. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So we must seek the things that are profitable and that edify. Those aren't, that's, that's not found in all things. And we have to ask ourselves two questions when it comes to practicing our Christian liberty. Does this, is this spiritually profitable? And is this, does this spiritually edify? Those are the two questions that we should always be asking ourselves. And that's not always an easy thing to do, especially when you're getting cut off on Highway 75 or something like that. It's not easy, but that's the life that we have to live. Like I said before, there's so much garbage that the world throws at us to pull our attention away from Christ. Garbage that isn't explicitly stated in Scripture as sinful, but certainly isn't spiritually profitable or edifying. I was going to make a big long list, but I figured I probably you guys can do that for yourself. We have Christian liberty. And it's not just, but that's, that's, that's something that so many churches have wanted for so long. Just give me a list of things I can do and can't do and I'll be good. And then I'll call myself a Christian. I'll slap the badge on it. That is not what the Christian life is about. Do's and do nots. It's, that's, that's not where it's at. We'll get to where it's at here shortly. And it's not just about being spiritually profitable and edifying for you. That's most important. It should be spiritually profitable and edifying to those around you as well. Let's look on at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. So spiritual edification or building up must come 
before your own gratification. And we must seek that which profits and edifies our neighbor, even if that means that we get nothing out of the deal. Even if that means that we have to sacrifice for the edification of others around us, our neighbors. But who exactly might that be? Who are our neighbors? Jesus was actually asked the same question in Luke chapter 10. Let's turn there now. I'm sure you're all very familiar with this parable and this story, but it's definitely worth revisiting. Chapter 10, starting in verse 23. I'm sorry, starting in verse 25. (laughs) And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down, to, down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down, that, down on that road, and when, they, when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, these are his same people, by the way, a Levite also, when he, he came down to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came Upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged him up, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these, now we're out of the parable, Jesus is speaking, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. Now, it's no secret that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. In fact, they would even travel out of their way to avoid each other and their opposing cities. Jesus said that that was your neighbor. The person you have nothing in common with. The person who despises you or even hates you. That's your neighbor. Now Jesus doesn't say that we have to embrace or affirm their lifestyle or participate in their sin with them. He doesn't even say that you have to be friends with that person, but we are required to love them and in their time of need, provide for them and edify them, no matter how difficult that may be. In fact, isn't that the total opposite of what our human nature is? To love our enemy? The Romans 8 says, Our minds are not set on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit, because the Spirit dwells within us, and we must live accordingly. We have to work opposite of the flesh. 
We don't do these things so that we can be considered a good person, which is what most Christians think is the purpose. No, we, we do these things so that they may be saved in the process. Because their souls are far more valuable than our egos. Let's get back to chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10, 1 Corinthians. These next verses, they're going to sound a little specific to the time, but remember that we're looking for that timeless truth. The thing, that the truth that exists beyond time within the text. Starting on verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the, market, or in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Now, the, the immediate context is meat sacrificed to pagan idols, but the idea of being able to, to eat anything, this is brand new to the Jews. They've never, they, this is new to them. And this change was no doubt difficult for them to swallow, and it, it probably got them a little choked up. Uh, that's a, jokes aside, this is a serious, there's a seriousness to this verse. Um, because if those of you who look at the world with a, a legalistic mindset or a point of view um, and state that you should never eat that meat whether you're alone or not, that legalist mindset will harm your own conscience. And it will also harm those around you. Maybe you don't even know that they're watching. So this idea that if you don't ask the question and you go ahead and partake in the meat, that that's automatically sinful. When you know, you know that meat means nothing. It's not, it, it, it means nothing if it's, been, if it's been sacrificed to idols. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 24 here in verse 26 to make his point. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Everything on earth was created by God and is His, and anything that is His is good, whether it's pork or meat sacrificed to idols. That animal doesn't belong to the idol. We already, we already stated that. That's clear. And as we know, idols are nothing. They're empty. There's nothing there. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscious sake. Now there's interest, something interesting. We hear that again, for conscious sake. But this is where our freedom lies. If you want to eat, then eat. It's that simple in this situation. This is the second time that that statement was repeated uh, for conscious sake. And, and when things are repeated, we take notice. And we'll get into that here in a second. Verse 28 and 29a. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscious sake. 29a. I mean, not your, con your own conscience, but the other man. So in verse 25, as well as these verses here, Paul is referring to the conscience of, of, of another person. Those who you're with are those who are watching from a distance. And despite your liberty, this is where 
the line is drawn. If another conscience, another's conscience is harmed because of your practice of your own liberty, as stated in chapter 8, it then becomes a sin against that person. And if others believe that you as a Christian are participated in, participating in pagan rituals with them, then you have just become a stumbling block to that person's conscience. And if, if you want a reference to today's day and age, there's plenty of things that we can participate in that the pagans participate in. And if we, if we do that and they are thinking that we are participating in it with them, I'll come back to that point. What does that mean to harm someone's conscience? Paul will clarify this shortly, but first I want to spend a little bit more time on withholding something from yourself for the sake of another person. Whenever I preached on this topic back in chapter 8, the title was Edifying Love, which is also the timeless truth that is applicable to us today. There was no greater display of love than that of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us. And this edifying love is a way that we can display the love of Christ to our world today as well as our brothers and sisters in the church. To withhold, our, to withhold or sacrifice our liberties for the edification of others. It's not exactly laying your life down, but it is certainly greater, a greater display of love than anything this world has to offer. And it just might be enough light in this dark world to get them to hear the gospel. Self-sacrifice for those who hate you, that's exactly what Christ did. Now in verse 29b and 30, Paul then asks some very strange rhetorical questions, but he likely knew that he would get asked these same questions from the Corinthians. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? I mean, it sounds like a fair argument. Verse 30, if I partake in thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning what I give thanks for which I give thanks. And if all you, Christian, had to think about was yourself, this would be a valid question. However, we know that from verses 23 and 24, we don't seek our own good, but the good of others, our neighbors. We seek that which spiritually is profitable and edifying for them. But if this wasn't enough explanation for the Corinthians, Paul doubles down with one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture, one that we should write down and read readily. Verse 20, or verse 31a, whether then you eat or drink, and here's the part that should stick, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's, that's what it's all about. That's it. It is, it's, it's that simple. This is the most fundamental description of what it means to be a, a Christian or a follower of Christ. And the word all is literally translated as every, everything you do. Everything. 
every breath, every morsel of food you eat, every second of sleep should all be done to the glory of God. And whether you're in the cold, dark valleys or high up on the mountaintop, you exist for one reason and one reason alone, one sole purpose, and that is to glorify Him. It's very opposite of what you'll hear in most churches today. That doesn't make people feel good. It makes me feel good. I love it. But uh, that is the truth of Scripture. And you may ask, well, how do I glorify Him with my breath? How do I glorify Him with my food or in my sleep? You glorify Him by realizing and praising Him, knowing that every breath that you take is one that He gave you until He doesn't. Every morsel of food is from Him and Him alone because He is your provider. And every second of rest is rest in Him, trusting His will for your life, whether you live for 60 more seconds or 60 more years. And when your eyes are open to that perspective, nothing else matters. They make you, it makes you do dumb things like quit your job. <laughs> but trust me, whenever I tell you, I am preaching to myself just as much as I'm up here preaching to you today. I'm in no higher position than any of you, and I have no authority over you. The Word does. Read it and understand it. Verse 32, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Now this statement pretty much covers all of humanity. From Israel to unbelievers to Christians. And as I said earlier, this isn't so that we look good. We do, not so we, people think that we're a good we're good people. That's not the reason why we give no offense. We have one sole purpose and, and one way that we bring glory to God is by sharing His gospel. We give no offense so that the unbelievers may be saved. If we hurt the conscience of an unbeliever, it may seriously hinder their ability to hear or receive anything you say about the gospel. And we know that we cannot save any, anyone. That's completely beyond our, our ability. But it is our responsibility, every Christian's responsibility, to preach Christ and Him crucified. Whether you're working as an electrician or a school teacher, it's your job. Even if it gets you fired. Because preaching the gospel is our sole purpose for mixing with unbelievers. There's no other reason. What purpose do we have in the world to mix with unbelievers other than share the gospel with them? There are countless verses that warn against partnership with the world. One is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 15. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and, uh, and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? If we're not sharing the gospel, then we are fellowshipping with the darkness 
And whenever we are with unbelievers, those things don't bear fruit unless we're sharing the gospel. And if it doesn't bear fruit, then we're not glorifying the Lord. But we're supposed to do all things, all things to glorify Christ, to glorify God, to the glory of God. And whenever they reject our message, what do we do? Do we hang out with them and continue because they're fun people? No. We kick the dust from our feet and we leave. And if they're offended by God's word, you're just the messenger. And we have nothing else for them. But we let the word and the Holy Spirit work until that point. Verse 33, and then verse 1. Just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So Paul concludes his point by offering himself as an example. There's that pattern I told you about. And through his example, one statement is crystal clear. We have one sole purpose for being on this earth. We have one sole purpose for every bit of breath in your lungs. One sole purpose for every piece of food in our bellies. And that one sole purpose is to glorify God in all that we do. Not just Sundays, not just Wednesdays, not just when we're with our church family, but forever. That is our timeless truth here in these verses. We seek what is spiritually profitable for our brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors outside of the church, all to the glory of God. We edify others, spiritually building them up, all to the glory of God. We love sacrificially, not seeking good for ourselves, but withholding our own liberties to protect the conscience of those around us, all to the glory of God of God and we preach Christ and him in him crucified to the lost in this dark world by shining the light that is the only beacon of hope love and truth in this world all to the glory of God amen